hey, you know what I believe? I believe every single person can make a difference and that we all have something amazing to offer the world. I believe in standing up for what matters and in putting one foot in front of the other. I believe courage is way more important than confidence and I'm addicted to seeing people break through what they once thought they couldn't. And that's why I started this podcast. I want you to believe in yourself. I want you to know that anything's possible. I want you to find the courage to stand up and do your thing. Everything's waiting for you. You just have to believe it's possible. I'm Karen Vaughan. This is the Get Off The Bench podcast. And here is where your courageous life starts. Hey guys, and welcome back to another week of the Get Off The Bench podcast. Hope you've had a good week. Uh, Some of you will know that I am the co-founder of Girls With Hammers with my partner, Nikki, and we got off the bench last week. We were supposed to have our annual conference in person um, and clearly no gatherings at the moment. So we decided to have an online event and we got Janet Hogan, who you know, I've just been previously done some work with and we had an event, we decided to call it On the Couch and Janet shared, you know, ways to break through your core destructive belief and stuff like that. So it was really good. And you know what, we didn't know how to run an online event. We'd never done one before, but you know, it just took a little bit of Googling and working it out and we did it. And I think that's sort of the message that I want to get across here is that sometimes you don't know how to do something. In fact, that's the biggest blocker. Self-doubt and not knowing where to start, you know, stops a lot of people from doing things. Uh, We didn't know how it would work. And, you know, we got 100 registrations and I sort of thought I better upgrade Zoom. And at the last minute went to do that and realized that if I upgrade to over 100 people, it's going to cost us 3000 bucks, which I didn't know about. So damn lucky I pulled the tickets when I did. But these are the kind of things you learn and these are the, uh, the ways that you grow when you decide to get off the bench and do something. So look, if we can do something like that, so can you. So anyway, I wanted to share that with you as a bit of inspiration to get you up and thinking, well, you know, maybe I can do something. Anyway, today, talk about getting off the bench. I've got with me, um, you know, Hollywood screenwriter, um, Bob Harris. Oh, he's amazing. I'm going to read out his, uh, his, all his information and my God, I'm going to have to take a few breaths halfway through it because he's just some, done some phenomenal stuff. So Bob is a screenwriter, speaker, author and has been a quiz show superstar, a radio commentator, TV host and comedian, among other things. As a screenwriter, Bob has written for Bones and CSI, was a consultant for Marvel's Avengers, The Age of Ultron, which, by the way, is the 10th top grossing film of all time. He was a head of the writer's room on El Pantera, which is Mexico's top action series, and the instructor of a graduate screenwriting program at the International Film School in Cologne, Germany. Bob has written five books, including The International Bank of Bob, whose readers have chipped in more than 10 million US to fund micro-businesses in more than 90 developing countries. He was an Associated Press award-winning radio commentator for five years and has contributed to dozens of publications ranging from the New York Times to The Intercept to National Lampoon. Bob has also contributed to Star Wars comics and as a travel writer for Forbes. His speaking appearances include Adobe, Google, eBay, Visa, TEDx and more than 200 US colleges and conferences hosted by the European Parliament and the US Department of State. 
Bob has been a TV presenter and co-host and has appeared on dozens of talk shows and was a stand-up comedian whose appearances included opening for Jerry Seinfeld, Tim Allen and Paula Poundstone. And in quizzing, Bob's US appearances include 14 episodes of Jeopardy and giving the fastest phone-a-friend response in the history of the American version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Bob is on the advisory board of the National History Bean Bowl, which is the largest academic quizzing organisation in the world, and the Pop Culture Hero Coalition, an anti-bullying charity. Offstage, Bob has kissed the Blarney Stone, rocked the Casbah, performed three marriages, becoming an ordained minister once to do so, including once on the Jeopardy set itself. And he's obtained a bachelor's degree with honours in electrical engineering and applied physics. Originally from a small factory town in Ohio, US, Bob now lives, gratefully, in Sydney. So let's jump over to the Zoom room and have a chat with Bob. Welcome, Bob. Hi, thanks for having me, Karen. Appreciate it. Um, it's my absolute pleasure. I was uh, thinking about all those things I was reading out and thinking, how does one person uh, find time to do all that in one lifetime? Uh, I, I'm, I have a short attention span, I guess. <laughs> uh, oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> uh, maybe, I'm, I, maybe I'm not very good at holding a job. Maybe I you know, have interpersonal deficiencies and no one can stand me after a while. Who knows? <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you what, it's, it's, um, it's far from, far from non-exciting. Well, it's just, I can't believe it. You know, it's just one thing after the other, after the other. And it's um, absolutely, you're bringing so much, you know, so much joy to the world too. If it wasn't for artists like you, you know, uh, contributing that sort of stuff, it's, um, you know, no, well, what would we be without Netflix and God knows what? <laughs> that's very kind. Um, yeah. <laughs> Particularly in the minute, at the minute it's, uh, with COVID and everything. But anyway, yeah. we won't, we, let's not give that too much airtime because it's, it's getting enough as it no. is. But Well, you um, know what? I'll give COVID credit. It got off the bench. You know, it was, <laughs> it was, it was just in a pangolin and it's, you know, just a little underdog virus and then went out and, and took the world by storm. So. <laughs> yes, that's right. And who says one person or one thing can't, can't change the world? Well, wow. yeah, well, somebody <laughs> ate a pangolin and changed the world. So I don't know if that's actually true. It's, you know, who really knows where it came from, but anyway. Yeah, I don't know either. I always yeah. say, if you think if you think one p- person can't change the world, think about the person who ate the bat. So yeah. whatever, whatever, however it got yeah. out, um, it, yeah. it was, you know, from one action. But yeah. So um, so yeah. So a lot has changed, you know, when we're really a lot of us have are really doing things differently, you know, at the moment, trying to. Well, some people are trying to manage, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of um, mental health issues mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff. But mm-hmm. there's also, I think it's time too that we start to look at life and say, well, you know, what else can I do and what mm-hmm. do I have to offer? And, you know, what can I do for, to make my bit um, mm-hmm. a contributing factor to making a better world? So, um, so yeah, yeah, hence this podcast and, you know, uh, hoping to fight, to inspire people to get up and get off the bench and do their thing. But so as I said before, you've done a million things, but um, so usually I start this podcast by asking guests, so tell us about the journey that led to point X, mm-hmm. but uh, you've got about 10 point X's, so I'm not sure where to start, but uh, so what about if you just tell us, I'm intrigued about your, you know, your growing up and your childhood mm-hmm. and what your aspirations were, you know, sure. and ha- how you come to, 
be sure. doing all these amazing things. Sure. Um, yeah, happy to. I, I want to just digress for a little bit. And on the point of, you know, we are in this unusual time and anyone listening to this, even maybe years from now, it won't be a COVID period. But during this moment, when anybody might be listening to this, it might seem like a particularly hard time to get off the bench and contribute when maybe you're locked down or whatever. We have this amazing thing called the internet. And mm. uh, you can find ways maybe to, even if you're not able to contribute, figure out some brilliant way uh, to transform a career, because a lot of people are having to look at that right now. You can mm -hmm. use the, the time to transform relationships. You can use the time to get in touch with old friends. You can use the time to reconnect. And that's good for, that. that's getting off the bench. If there's the person who, eh, I should have always said sorry about that, or I would yeah. like to forgive this person or yeah. any of that. We are in what I consider, I'm, I'm uh, atheist leaning agnostic, but this is kind of a potentially holy time where people can, can reconnect uh, the most important little pieces of their lives in reaching out yeah. to others. And, and that takes a little courage and that takes a little oomph. And that's something any of us can do if you've got an internet connection and no matter how you know, difficult things may be uh, or, or you know, we don't really know the future and maybe people are in career transition, but that's something that's available. And I just want to encourage yeah. people to maybe reach out and do that. So there's something practical right off the top. Um, so as far as my own glorious life, um, yeah, I, I came from a, a, a my dad, the, the, the shorthand, as I try to thumbnail 56 years, but uh, I, my, my parents came from uh, one of the very poorest parts of America, Lee County, Virginia, uh, which is... Uh, uh, the very western tip of Virginia, deep in the Appalachian Mountains, coal mining country. Um, uh, to this day, a lot of people are still living at nearly a 19th century living standard. And uh, my dad literally uh, hunted for uh, uh, dinner on the side of a hill uh, to, you know, help feed his family in a in a house his dad built with his hands. Um, it was uh, ultim uh, utterly backwoods. And they came north at the end of, uh, uh, after World War II, at the same time as what's called the Great Migration, where a tremendous number of uh, uh, blacks from the American South moved north and took factory jobs and worked at, uh, you know, uh, Ford plants up in Michigan and General Motors in Ohio and so on. Uh, my parents were, uh, uh, were, were Caucasian, but they, they came north as part of the same migration up what's called the Hillbilly Highway, came north up uh, through Ohio. And uh, that's how my dad wound up in a factory job. Um, and he wound up working in the factory for 37 years before retiring. And wow. I learned two things from watching that. Um, as a, as a, and I didn't know the history of it when I was a kid. But I saw that this was a guy with no education at all, no skills, no anything. And he was able to still, uh, and at the time through strong labor unions, he was able to still put, not just put food on the table, but he put a roof over our head. And he was, to use the vernacular of your show, off the bench. He, they could have stayed up in the hills. They could have stayed in the mountains, but they yeah. were going to go have a better life. And mm -hmm. it was a huge challenge. And, but he also, uh, in the factory, was the daily grind. The days were always the same. And yeah. it wore him down. And he was drinking as far back as I can remember just to kind of anesthetize. And I remember watching that as a kid and I could sense without having the emotional vocabulary to, to say it explicitly, but I could feel in the my bones, the energy of this is somebody who can do a lot, who's not doing a lot. And I feel the frustration. I feel the uh, uh, how how hard this is. And I just like 
I never want to do that. Like I felt like the next step forward to continue forward, what dad had created one way to maybe honor him to, to continue that or whatever was not to go through that same frustration. And I, I just, I wasn't capable of it myself anyway. I mean, I, I kind of, I do sort of have a short attention span and I do go berserk if I have too much routine. And so that's, that's really what motivated all of the, um, I mean, there've been a million changes along the way in my career. I've had several different ones and the, the, the thing I've been terrified at every single step. If there's anybody listening to this who has imposter syndrome or thinks, Oh, I can't really do it. Or people like, I have like, believe me, every single thing I've ever done, I thought, Oh, there's no way I'm going to pull this one off. They're going to see, (laughs) this is just tragic. It's going to be awful. And sometimes it has been, sometimes it hasn't. Um, But there's a certain joy in at least, Hey, I gave it a shot. I, in in the American sports metaphor, I stepped up to the plate. I, I took my swing. Yeah. Um, and so even failure, failure hurts less than not trying, mm. uh, at least for me. And so, yeah, there's like, like, I've given talks in front of thousands of people, like huge crowds. I've, I've, I've done uh, a thing and every single time I've stood in the back of the room beforehand thinking, oh man, really? All these people are going to be, I mean, like 30 <laughs> years into my career, I'm still back there secretly having stage fright. Um, <laughs> So anybody hearing this, yeah, that's that's part of it. That's part of the deal. Every script I write, oh, this one's going to suck. This one, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm lost. I'm, who am I fooling? And then you keep working, you figure it out. So mm. that the shorthand of how I get, got to any of the, to answer your question, was that was the origin of kind of who I am and where I came from. And then, and by the way, a lot of the changes along the way, the career transitions, they've been motivated because one of the other things that came out of my childhood my grandfather was a Baptist minister and which, and he was so Southern fundamentalist that I was an agnostic by the time I was five, just listening to him. <laughs> uh, you know, there were giants in those days. Oh, come on. <laughs> no, there weren't. And he, 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 like the ludicrous things he would say as if they were true. And, and I just remember thinking this is insane, but the, the basic idea that it's a good thing that you want your life to be about doing good for others, helping others, that was at the core of it. That was drummed into me, you know, the, the, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, that was drummed into me very young. So a lot of times I've, I've had to leave jobs when I felt, or stop things from happening, when I felt that it wasn't going to be doing good for the world, mm-hmm. and therefore I, I wouldn't be doing good for myself by being part of it. And, uh, and I also wanted anybody who would learn from any of my experiences, I've given up huge paychecks for that. And I've given up huge opportunities and I have never regretted one, one decision ever. Even when I was living in a YMCA in Chicago and I was dirt broke and I could barely afford $7 a night for a room. Uh, I had gotten there from a decision that, that seems like it would have been a hard one, but it, it, it was inevitable. And I never had a, never had a regret. Um, so I think that's also part of why I've been able to have a, a sort of interesting life and and stay off the bench is the kind of being driven to okay well this isn't helping anybody my i i kind of need the validation of feeling like i'm doing something good and so then i'll let me make another choice i'd rather fail i'll I'm, let me let me let me what else can i screw up <laughs> and that's motivated the next step yeah and it's, you know, it's, you've obviously got some innate 
uh, tenacity in there, you know, or something in there that because you could have ended up the same, you know, you could easily have copied your father and copied your grandfather, you, you know, like a lot of people do mm. and just stayed mm. stuck in that. But there, there must be something in you that um, pushed you further afield, you know, just gave you that extra yeah. bit of nudge. Yeah. Even if you well, don't know what for it is. me, the haunting image for me is the alternative is is being my father drinking and not knowing what to do next. Yeah. And, and that sense of, and, and for me, it's like, I, I just, I can't go down. I know, I know that if I, sharks have to keep swimming, that's not drown. I don't know if that's actually factually true, but I've heard it a bunch of times. And there's a certain degree where for me, I just feel like, you know, life is, it, it, it's, it, life is, it is a first draft. We are mm-hmm. going to make our mistakes. It is, you know, 20 to 80 years of first draft, maybe a hundred if you're lucky. And so you're gonna mess up and there's gonna be, um, but it, it's, we also don't get a second take. It's not, yeah. a, it's not a rehearsal. We don't get a second shot at it. When you're 70, you're 70. And yep. you don't get to go back and ask the girl out or ask the guy out in, in college again. You either did it or you didn't. So I'm, you know, I, I also, I, I failed a lot early and I learned that it didn't hurt as bad as I thought it would. Yeah. Uh, I was very fortunate that one of my first careers was in a stand-up comedy and I had to suck terribly in order to get any good at it because you have to deal with nerves and you have to learn how to, you know, frame a set and work a room and there's so much to learn and you can't practice it at home like you can music. You have to do it in front of people. So <laughs> you have to suck for a while. It's just part of it. And I, I was awful at first, just terrible. And uh, I'd go up and I'd be so nervous that like I could barely, I'd remember like premises of jokes, the basic shape of things. I'd kind of mumble, so baseball, and then nothing. Like I'd just be, <laughs> people were like, who let him out of, you know, he, shouldn't he be medicated? Is there something? <laughs> and, you know, but eventually over time. And so having so much kind of public rejection um, and it was before the internet, so none of it was on somebody's camera and then, you know, put online, yeah. being able to fail so publicly and yet so privately so many times. Uh, and it hurt, it hurt so bad. I'd come off the stage, like just wanting to cry. Sometimes I did just feel it, but, but I also was like, I got to get out of, I got to, I need to find a way to make a creative way to make a living. This is one potential sh- I'm going to keep doing this. I want to do it. And eventually I stopped sucking. Uh, so nothing, no, no publisher's rejection. Uh, I've had, I could wallpaper the room or, uh, uh, scripts that I've written, uh, that almost got made that then didn't. And now are just flypaper. Uh, that all hurts too, but it, none of it hurts as much as stuff that I've already been through. And I know that I survived. So I would also recommend if you're out there and there's something, a dream you want to pursue and you're afraid to try it. Oh, try it. And then when it hurts and it doesn't work at first, welcome that because that's the first step. That's, that's, you have to plow through that and you're doing it now and Mm. just keep going forward. Yep. So, you know, you came through college and you got a a degree in or master's or a bachelor, bachelor of science in electrical engineering and applied physics. So how do you, how do you go from that to the arts, arts Uh world, you know, stage, screen, writing, how does that, they're, they're not even, they're worlds apart. How yeah. does that crossover happen? And by the way, I was, I was such a great engineer that earlier before our conversation, I couldn't even make Chrome work. 
Um, but uh, so anyway, we had a little technical issue before that, that Karen resolved. I uh, um, well, I uh, the engineering work that I was doing was for a big defense contractor when I got out of college. Uh, I won't get into too much detail, but it was an Amer- It was the height of the Reagan defense buildup, and. Um, I had no political views yet. I was still quite young. I was 20 and I was working at this company. And I found out that they were doing a bunch of things that I considered really unethical. And I looked in the mirror and I was like, well, I can take the paycheck and just do this office thing and have the little name tag and and pretend to like the guy next to me and rationalize it because it's paying the rent. And I saw my father's regret in him never trying other things. It was fresh. Mm -hmm. He was still around. And it was just wasn't an option. So, okay, what else can I do? And so I then, I left engineering, despite the fact I was $40,000 US in the mid eighties in debt, which I think would translate to about 120 Australian right now. Mm. I'm not sure. I was really in debt. And I quit my first job out of college, making myself fairly unemployable. Um, most people would look at me like I was an idiot and Lord knows my family did. Um, and I went back and I wrote a, I I lived, uh, over my parents' house in the attic and I wrote a really bad novel that got rejected by every publisher. It was humiliatingly bad. I had no idea what I was doing. I had very little liberal arts training. Um, and then I was, uh, at a, uh, uh, improv show at second city in Canada. Uh, a friend of mine, we just kind of got out of town for a weekend and I saw second city And here I'm watching people actually doing comedy for a living and having fun. And the crowd is delighted. And they made it look so easy that I thought to myself, you know, I could do that. And eventually I did, but I had no idea how hard it would be. (laughs) And and I sat there and I watched it. I was like, wait a minute. Okay, so that's something that people can do that makes a living and makes people happy. And, Mm. oh, I want to do that. How do I do that? So then I angled to get a job in Toronto, which was hard to do from America. But Second City, of course, was founded in Chicago. Wait a minute. Chicago is a 10-hour bus ride from where I live. All right. So on the bus. Uh, And (laughs) that's how I wound up living in a YMCA and taking improv classes at night uh, with a legendary improv guru named Del Close, who was one of the founders of Second City. And if you've laughed in the 21st century... You owe a generational debt to Del Close, I promise you, if you did the lineage. I wrote an article about it, actually, on The Intercept. You can Google my name, Bob Harris, The Intercept, and and the name, or just the word improv, and you'll get a whole history of how Del and uh, Second City really influenced so much that's funny in the Western comedy vernacular. And I was very lucky that I met him uh, and became a student of his when he was kind of down on his luck uh, uh, and teaching in the back room of a bar in Chicago uh, and kind of like anybody who came in could take the classes. And I spent this time with this guy who Dell was messed up. He was an emotional wreck. Uh, He had addiction issues. He had emotional issues that people could write whole books about, but he also had lived his freaking life. He had never, his, his butt had never been on the bench. That guy had done, pioneered improv comedy. He had been uh, organized the committee in San Francisco, another seminal improv group. He had uh, been an opening act for the Grateful Dead. He'd been a fire eater in the circus. He, like all of his stories, like one night we were in the back room and he'd met everybody just by being out there in the world. Mm. We're in the back room uh, just hanging out and uh, Timothy Leary walks in. Like, wait a minute, wait, wait, you guys know each other? And they go upstairs (laughs) 
And uh, Tim apparently had brought some new secret stash and we heard this really eerie laughter for a couple of hours. And <laughs> that was Dell and Tim having a great time. And um, anyway, so then there was this role model who had gone out and was the extreme opposite of my dad and had done all these things. And he seemed to have no regrets and nobody knew who he was. He wasn't famous. He hadn't, none of his life goals had really happened the way he wanted, but he was, I won't say happy, but he was, uh, he was, he was doing okay. He was pretty okay. It looked like an interesting life. So he kind of became my, my, uh, short-term personal savior. Uh, I'm gonna, mm. gonna try to live like that. And then I just, uh, supported myself, eventually found a couple of engineering jobs, uh, uh, short-term things uh, I could do during the day while going out and sucking at comedy at night <laughs> until eventually somebody paid me $15 to do 15 minutes of comedy followed by slightly larger gigs, slightly larger gigs. Fast forward the tape and a couple of years later I'm headlining, but uh, after a lot of suck. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And you've, you've, you know, Opened for Seinfeld. Um, who was the other one? Oh, Tim Allen. Tim Allen. Yeah. It's like that. That's just fantastic. But so everybody sees these guys as um, you know amazing. You know, we only see the highlight reel, of course. Are any of them? Um, who's your favourite? Like in the green room? Are any of them actually decent? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. I won't say a negative word about anybody because this is being <laughs> recorded. Um, uh, it was always a kick to open for somebody who was a big name. I never became the big name. Um, I became friends with a lot of them. Um, and uh, some of them I opened for, I was not friends. One thing about opening for a big name act, though, is that no one's there to see you. You're just there to warm up for 12 minutes, and you are just a warm body. So you come out, and one of two things can happen. Either they're not interested in you at all, and it's a difficult show, or they really like you, and then the big name headliner may not be happy about that. So... <laughs> there's, there's, I mean, some of them were actually really cool. There was a guy named George Wallace, who's probably not terribly well known here in Australia, but is, is he could not have been lovelier. Uh, he's a huge headliner in Vegas for many years. He could not have been lovelier. Um, my favorite uh, personal interactions with a comedian are actually for a guy I never opened for. And I'm not even certain we've known each other long enough. I don't know how we became friends. And I don't think he remembers either. I think we were introduced to each other by John Hodgman, the uh, uh, the writer uh, who's done a lot of comedy and stuff. Uh, uh, Emo Emo Phillips is uh, uh, maybe not super famous here, but go Google him. Uh, Emo E M O, just Emo and comedy, and you'll find him. Yeah. When they do surveys of comedians about who's the best living joke writer, he's always always in the list. He, wow. it's, he's, he's brilliant and quirky and unusual and offstage. He's quirky and brilliant and unusual. He's very much offstage like he is on. And he's one of my dearest, oldest friends. He's a, 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 the idea that comedians are cutthroat and backbiting or competitive or like the stereotype of comedians. It's mostly not true at all. Mm -hmm. The only way you can actually function doing that is you've got to support each other. You've got to, somebody has a rough set, you know, you meet them off stage and, and, you know, Hey man, you'll go get them next time, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of guys, you know, yeah, or, or, and women, I don't mean to be sexist in my, my terminology, but when I did comedy in the eighties and nineties, it was 99% male. Yeah. Um, so I think of it as guys, cause it, it was at the time. Um, the uh, and by the way, tons of my favorite comedians. I want to. Elaine Boozler is a total sweetheart. 
and back in the 80s and 90s was one of the just most successful, courageous, brilliant performers I've ever seen. So I would, I would give a shout out to her. She and Emo are good friends too. Yep. Um, a woman named Wendy Liebman has a really unique act and uh, uh, is brilliantly funny and very, very sweet. Anyway, so Emo and I, though, um, we became close enough that I actually officiated his wedding, uh, which, uh, and everybody, and comedy royalty came. Like, it was like everybody in, in comedy in L.A. was at that wedding. Wow. And it was the second wedding I'd ever officiated. And so I'm, you know, I don't, it's not what I do, but he asked <laughs> me to do it. I said, so it's another get off the bench thing. It's like, okay. <laughs> I don't know how to do this, but they want me to do it and I'll try and I'll hope I don't mess it up. And um, I decided that, that the, the way to go with that would be to be studiously not funny. I'm gonna go for the holy man thing because <laughs> I will be the least funny person here. So I'll just go ahead and do that. Anyway, so, so Emo, yeah. And I would encourage anybody listening to this, if you just wanna have a good time, Emo comedy, you'll see something really unique. Is that why you became an ordained minister just to do his wedding or is it, you know, is that, was that the start of that? No, actually, in California, uh, anybody off the street can go ahead and do a wedding. Oh, wow. uh, you can file some paperwork. Um, I had to do a wedding in the state of Ohio. I officiated the, the wedding uh, of my niece to uh, her, her then husband. And uh, uh, she's, you know, she's my niece. I love her dearly. And she wanted me to do the wedding. Ohio has these 19th century laws uh, that you you have to be an ordained minister in a recognized church in order to perform a wedding. And mm. so I committed fraud on the state of Ohio. <laughs> and, but I don't live in America anymore, so I can probably get away with saying this. <laughs> I actually just committed fraud and got, and I have the framed, you know, like I am the member, at the, but it's, it's like totally fake. I, I, could, I could, I actually went down, I had to go to the secretary of state's office in Columbus, Ohio. And, um, uh, I, I dressed up, I, I actually dressed the part. I did cosplay. I thought it'd be really fun. I slicked up my hair and I dressed like a, just a bastard of a minister, one of those televangelist <laughs> people. And I went in there and I was scared I was going to get arrested or something. It's probably no big deal. And I, I, I blustered. I, I like, I was impatient and I was imperious and I was a jackass and <laughs> they just did the paperwork and gave it right back to me. And I was out of there in an hour. And, uh, <laughs> oh no! <laughs> yeah, so that was. <laughs> I love my niece. There was no way I wasn't going to do her wedding, so I, I did that. <laughs> so that that's how that happened. That's how that happened. <laughs> oh, that's a ripper! And you did you did a wedding on the set of Jeopardy? Like, yes. How did that How did that eventuate? Um, you can actually see this online. Anybody can Google Jeopardy wedding. Um, yeah. Uh, in 1997, I'd been on the show, uh, and they used to retire you if you won five games, that was the end of your run. Yeah. And, uh, so I won five games and they off the show I go, then they have an annual tournament of champions. And I got to the finals of the tournament of champions, uh, against this guy. And by the way, I mean, I don't have a liberal arts education. I had new engineering and I had some you know, some things I'd picked up over the years being in theater and on stage, but I, you know, I, so I basically just memorized a whole bunch of crap um, to get on the show. And there are memory techniques that I've taught at schools and they're not terribly challenging. Um, 
anybody can use them. And yeah. so I loaded a bunch of crap into my head and I had trained myself that if they said, uh, 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 if they said Voltaire, then I, okay, that's French literature. And, and I know that I can, I can, I can probably say, um, oh, now it slipped my mind. I'm trying to think of the group that there's a famous book by Voltaire, Candide. Right. If they say Candide. I'll say Voltaire. If they say Voltaire, I'll say Candide. That'll probably be right. That was like the depth <laughs> of my knowledge. So I go up against this uh, Berkeley professor who had actually read all the books whose titles I had merely memorized and dusted me. He crushed me like a flea. <laughs> like it was humiliating. But we got to, he had a great sense of humor. We became really good friends. And then a few years later, uh, he was going to get married and he's kind of a geek and so is his wife and they uh hey you know it'd be fun let's let's ask jeopardy to do it on the set and bob you want to do it's like yeah sure and then jeopardy <laughs> they're really nice people and they said yeah and so one day at the end of taping they uh, after five days five games taped that day and it's a long tape day they, they're you know trying to hit that schedule for like six hours and it's the multi-million dollar machine running with all the people moving around alex comes out alex trebek the host hits his mark and and then at the end of the day, they all of a sudden, people from King World and Sony came out and they decorated the whole set in flowers. And they, <laughs> they, we, turned the, we turned it into a wedding chapel. The, the, uh, the vows were put up on the game board. Uh, the contestants stood at the podiums. I officiated from the host's podium. And it, it was actually done as gameplay. Like, uh, Dan, <laughs> Fabulous. you have control of the wedding. Well, I'll take vows for 200, Bob. Your answer is, a man says this, if he'll take a woman to be his lawfully wedded wife. What is I do, Bob? We used the buzzers. It was the geekiest wedding ever. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it was the first wedding I ever did in my life. So I've never done a wedding. I've certainly never stood at the host's platform at Jeopardy. Alex, the host, and all the producers, they're all standing right there. I mean, like, this is an amazing opportunity to fall <laughs> on my face. And cameras are rolling. And But screw it. I'm, I would rather have messed that up than not tried. And I went out and and I, I practiced for, like, weeks to have it memorized perfectly and had little cheat notes and everything. And then, you know, on the day, uh, but e even if it had been a total mess, it, it would have been it would have been fine because everybody loved everybody and it was mm. the right thing to do. And, you know, and it still would have been, you know, a, a wonderful thing. So again, that's for anybody who wants to get off the bench. Just look, if I could do that, <laughs> if you want to, if you want to play your guitar in public or you want to publish your poetry or you want to become an actor or you want to, uh, you know, finally call that person that you're interested in or just, just, do it, and, and you're not going to screw it up any worse than I've screwed stuff up. I promise. You'll be okay. <laughs> and that, that uh, has led you. I mean, you, you said you've never stood behind the host's podium, but there you there mm. you were. But then you ended up um, hosting a lot of shows, like, you you know, TV presenter, co-host, and that sort of stuff, mm -hmm. but, and uh, dozens and dozens of talk shows. So it's it obviously springboarded you to something you know, that, that you were actually good at, that you didn't even realize you were good at. I was listening to well, you playing and it sounded fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, I mean, I've, most of the shows I've hosted, of course, never actually went into production. I've hosted tons of pilots. Yeah. That, uh, and when, some of them were great. Some of them weren't. Uh, uh, one of them 
I is that I do have there's there I mean by the way there are real regrets there are things that didn't happen that should have that would have been fantastic if they mm. had but they couldn't for various reasons um but you just you know keep going forward uh yeah I've, I've it turned out yeah I was actually pretty decent at hosting I'd done some of it prior to that time uh that wedding and then some afterwards um and it, it's the some of the stuff that actually got on the air was the history channel had a uh, the National History Bee, and I was a co-host of the show, uh, watching these wonderfully brilliant uh, high school and middle school kids, uh, just full of full of energy and life and way too much knowledge. And <laughs> that was delightful. And I got to host, uh, I used to do segments on a Mythbusters-like ripoff show called uh, Mostly True Stories, where I mostly blew things up and shot guns and, and pushed things over and filled things with cement. And it was, it was, it was like being in a cartoon uh, for, so yeah, it was, it was really fun. And that all came out of just not saying no to yeah, opportunities, yeah. which brings me, I want to, this is again, encouragement for, for people. There's a rule in improv comedy uh, that is fundamental. Uh, it's the first thing they teach you. Everyone who's ever done improv comedy knows about it. It's called yes. And, and yeah. it's, uh, uh, you yes and something. If you're on stage and you're trying to create uh, uh, a scene instantly with people, the example Dell used to always give is if your partner says, well, here we are in Spain, it's your job to agree with that and amplify it immediately and make it bigger. Yeah. So if you say, no, we're in France, well, now you've just got stupid conflict. But if you, they say, here we are in Spain and the person next to you is, uh, and your response is, oh my God, and uh, uh, I, I've never been in a bullfight before. And now you're in Spain and you're in a bullfight and there's tension and stakes and things are happening. And so by yes ending, you rapidly get stuff. Mm. It also works incredibly well in life. Mm. Uh, yeah. it's, it's, it is a philosophy to take right off the stage. And when somebody says, hey, do you want to try this? The default, I mean, look, if it's, if it's jumping out of an airplane or it's something ridiculous, okay, no is perfectly appropriate. But if it doesn't violate your boundaries and isn't unsafe, if your default answer just becomes yes, yeah. and, and try to figure out how to amplify it, how to make mm -hmm. it bigger, how to run with it. So, you know, uh, uh, my friend Dan says, hey, you want to officiate this wedding at Jeopardy? Yes, and I'm gonna... <laughs> okay, I'll do it and I'll contact people and I'll try to make this as big as I can. Yes, let's do that. Uh, it, uh, I was asked to write a book one time that I didn't feel I was qualified to write. Um, and uh, it actually, a couple of my books have been things I didn't think I was qualified to write. And some people might still agree. Uh, <laughs> there was a, uh, a book about the, the charity Kiva um, uh, called, uh, which is microfinance, whole other story. Just Google Kiva and my name and you'll find it. Um, where to explore uh, a Nobel Peace Prize winning method of poverty alleviation, I had to stake like four years of my life and go traveling around Rwanda and Lebanon and India mm. and a bunch of places looking at the lives of the working poor. Mm. And am I qualified? Is that something, does my resume sound like that's something I can do? <laughs> no, but... It also, it was something to be good for the world yeah. and it was storytelling and it's yeah. listening to people and it's just meeting people and sitting down and saying, oh, tell me about your life. Okay. That's something anybody can do. So it wasn't about having a degree in uh, development or economics or whatever. I can call people who have those and get their advice. What the job really entailed was just being nice and listening to people and being open-minded. 
Hmm. And okay, so anybody could have done that if you have the right mindset. Okay, so I can do that. So yes, and. And every fun thing I've ever done uh, has really come out of yes, and. Really recommended. I love that. Love that so much. I want to talk about that book in a minute and Kiva and everything else. Before we do, before we get off the uh, stage and screen, you know, area, you have written also for CSI and Bones and, you know, that sort of stuff. And what does it take to do that? Like, how does somebody get into screenwriting? And and tell us about the rejections, because I'm sure there's been sure. some. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I actually, all the rejections are weirdly coming at the back end of my career, not the beginning. It's the opposite of comedy. Um, I, I got into that in this really weird way. I'd been doing, uh, radio, uh, for a bunch of years. And again, with no qualifications, I sort of pushed my way in and, and I got canned, uh, from radio in 2002 in America. I was opposed to the upcoming Iraq invasion. And I believed that it was all built completely on lies. And I became really vocal about that prematurely. Had I said the same thing five years later, it wouldn't have been a problem. But yeah. saying that during the buildup uh, created some friction and I lost this radio thing. I had this radio platform where I was syndicated nationally and on like 75 stations and it was growing. And it was, and I basically lost the career because I took an ethical stand. Mm. And um, I've never regretted that one. So anyway, um, out of that, so at that time, I had fallen into, and this is pure blind luck, and this is not available to everybody. This is where, but you sort of make your own luck by trying things, by giving things a shot. Mm. So I started dating a TV writer uh, at the time who uh, was just telling me about what she does. And it seemed really interesting, really cool storytelling. And she, you know, and um, uh, I wound up actually uh, sitting over, I don't want to get into some heavy name dropping here, but... um, uh, there's, there was a show Buffy the Vampire Slayer back in the uh, yep. uh, the late yep. 90s and early 2000s. And uh, at the time, it was like the 69th highest rated show in America. And it was on this tiny little network. Now it's this big cult thing. But back mm-hmm. then, there was not much of an audience. And it was season three, I think. Anyway, so um, through this writer that I was dating, I wound up getting invited regularly to go over uh, to... Joss Whedon's house and watch the episodes of Buffy as they aired. And, oh, that sounds neat. And he's not super famous yet. He's not this huge, you know, and it's just this little cult TV show. And he could not have been nicer or sweeter uh, or like it was, it was always a really cool experience. So I got to ask Joss stuff sometimes and uh, Jane and other writers and, and people there. Okay. So end of act two, I noticed that that ended an emotional beat, not an action beat or a suspense beat. How's that work? You know, I got I got to learn not by going to college, but by actually sitting with people doing the thing and asking them, mm. which was an incredibly privileged position. That is yeah. super freaking lucky. Mm. Um, so I, I mean, I totally own you know the, the, but at the same time, we also make our own luck. If I were still in Ohio, that's never happening. Yeah, if I don't move right. to Chicago, that's not happening. If I don't take the ethical stand in radio, I'm still doing radio. If I don't, I could have sold out. I could have, they only happened because I kept spinning the prize wheel till I hit something good. Yeah. And uh, so that's, that was, now that's not how I got my start writing. I actually uh, wasn't even interested in TV writing yet. A couple of years go by, I lose the radio gig and I write one spec script. Uh, and a spec script is like a demo tape, but on paper, it's where you write 
uh, a demo version of a TV show that's well known, a, a fictional episode that you make up. Yep. It's not quite the way in anymore, but it was at the time. And I wrote the spec script of The West Wing um, that was fine. It wasn't fantastic. It was pretty good. Um, it was a very good first spec script. It really was. It showed mm -hmm. a lot of promise because I worked really hard on it. And it fell into the hands of the executive producers at CSI just as they were about to hire a lowest level staff writer to expand their writing staff because the show was about to, to uh, splinter off into a the Miami spinoff as well and they yeah, needed more yeah. people. Yeah. So it wasn't just luck. I'd written something that really was good enough, but it got in the right hands. And mm. then I showed up in the interview and I wore pants and I, you know, was sane and they hired me. <laughs> so I did that for a year and uh, it was a, a, a fascinating experience. It was, it was a, a huge learning opportunity that uh, I was glad I took. I also discovered that I really didn't like writing procedurals because it's the dead body of the week. And mm. am I making the world better by sitting in this room and we're just coming up with a new way of murdering people and we're <laughs> going to show that to 30 million pairs of eyeballs. So I, I also started being really depressed that year. Um, it didn't feel like I was, I had made a, a, a step toward doing something good. It was a, a step toward big paychecks. Mm. That, great. But it, and I was probably pretty miserable to be around that year. Uh, personally and professionally. And at the end of the year, I, I just, that, was, it was, that was an experience that was done for, I think, all concerned. Um, and then Bones happened. Uh, uh, one of the CSI producers uh, was now working over on Bones and uh, introduced me and brought me in uh, uh, to work on an episode. Uh, and the, the guy who runs Bones, uh, Hart Hansen, is a, ran Bones, created it. What a great guy and a terrific mm. boss and a completely different experience. And just, we're still friends. Um, uh, with Beck, there's a project he's working on that there's a small chance I might get involved with. Uh, which leads me to another thing I would want to share with anyone getting off the bench. After a certain amount of time, particularly if you're young and you're listening to this, um, I'm 56 now. I feel like I'm 25, but I've been 25 for 31 years. So... Um, <laughs> Take it from someone who's been 25 for 31 years. <laughs> Most of the jobs that I get now, and by the once you're 40 or 50 or whatever, and if you've been doing something, now it usually comes because people met me and they liked me and I was nice to them. Yeah. And they're nice to me back. Yeah. And nice is a superpower. If you're actually good to people, like not for not not as a career thing, people smell that. But if like you really remember their birthday because you like them. Mm. When you make that effort, it it ninety percent of the time there will be no payoff other than you made somebody happy, which is enough. Mm. But if it's if you're doing something creative where everybody has to be working together on stuff, relationships build and deepen over time, and you get your circle and mm. you find people. And there are a group of maybe twenty or thirty people over the years that I've worked with in various capacities, who I would call in a second or intro somebody, they would call me. And we all help each other. And, and it's, it's how you get jobs when you're older. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's the, it is the best. And at the same time, you have a support group. So nice. Cultivate the nice. Yep. Agree. Yeah. I'm 57 and I still rely on that. Yes. Yeah. You have to be, you have to build relationships, have to be nice. I agree. 
I, well, that's part of why I'm doing this podcast with you is I met you and I liked you. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Well, I met you and I like you too. <laughs> well, there we are. Uh, that's awesome. And so um, how many times have you been, you know, you've, you've given a script to a producer and they've said, Bob, you, you suck. This really sucks. <laughs> it's not going anywhere. <laughs> uh, that, that hasn't happened with scripts ever. It happened back in comedy. Um, I, uh, early on when I still had my day job, and it was really valuable, by the way. This is a good story. Uh, uh, it, it's a, it has a happy ending. I still actually had my day job. And back then, you would get uh, comedy gigs by sending out videotapes of yourself performing. And so the first time I had professional work, I made sure I got video. I paid all the money I had for VHS copies and postage and sent them out to comedy producers all over the country, every comedy club there was. And eventually, I did get enough work off of that. That, that got me started. But one of them, a guy who ran um, one of the biggest chain of comedy clubs in the Midwest, a place called the Funny Bones that had clubs in big towns uh, by my standards, Milwaukee, Pittsburgh. Hey, I'm playing Pittsburgh. But that was a, you know, to get paid to go perform on stage. And it's like, I'm a touring comic now. It would have been a huge break if he'd loved me. So I, he saw my tape, somehow found my work phone number. Uh, where like I kind of blows my cover that I'm not even really a full-time comedian yet. <laughs> Tracks me down, calls me up. Uh, uh, I don't know if I should even mention his name. He's a, he's a good guy. He, he calls me up and, uh, hey, how you doing? It's, uh, I won't use his last name. It's Jeff, such and such. And I recognize the name like from the Funny Bone in Milwaukee. And, oh, wow. and, and he's calling me here and he must have liked my tape. That's what I'm thinking. And he's, yeah, uh, so I just thought I'd give you a call. Um, got your tape, and you suck, man. You just suck. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I swear to God, it's burned into my memory. That's exactly <laughs> how it happened. And I was, I, my heart just fell. Like, I, oh, <laughs> no. But then there was kind of a beat, and I didn't even know how to respond. I was like, uh, well, I mean, thanks for watching the tape, I guess. But then he said, listen, you know, I'm calling, though. Um, look, you're a bright guy, and... I like a lot of the ideas, like what you're trying to do. So, you know, I just want to let you know, I, I, a lot of guys will just blow people off. They don't call you back. They, if they don't mm -hmm. like your tape. They won't call you. I call everybody. You're not ready. You suck. But um, I think in a year, you keep at it. I think you got a shot. Get back to me. Send me another tape in like a year. And, uh, you know, I'll look at it. I'll always look at it. Okay. You seem like a good guy. Mm. And, oh, oh. Okay, so that was terrible, but also good. And I worked my ass off for a year, sent him a tape a year later. He hired me and I worked for him for years. And I worked all his clubs. And wow. he, I think I met him in person like once. I can't tell you that we were great friends, but that honest feedback mm. was the kindest thing he could possibly have done. Yep, yep. And so it, it's another way to greet rejection is listen to it sometimes. Mm. One of the things that I do with every, everything I write, is I'll, uh, uh, almost anything I create, I will give it to a circle of friends and beg them to tear it apart. Yeah. If, if, if something doesn't work, tell me what's, because if, it's, if, it's, if this character doesn't seem authentic to you, or if this emotional beat or this plot point doesn't seem logical to you, it, you're not going to be the only one. Mm, yep. So please give me the negative feedback. And if you're just starting out and you're, you're getting off the bench, some of that early negative feedback some of it's going to suck and some of it's mm. going to be, some of it's useful. One yep. other thing I want to share, I hate to keep just yammering on, but um, 
But generally speaking, it's also true for anyone who's, if you're young and you're listening to this and you're trying to work up the nerve to, to face rejection, this is also true a lot of times, I'd say the majority of time, rejection is almost never about you. Acceptance, a yes is about you. Yep. You get a yes, that's because they liked the thing and it's about you and welcome to, you're in, let's go, next step forward. That is about you, so take that. But rejections, well, they may have already filled the job or mm. the job may not be there anymore or the budget got cut or uh, it's too far. It, 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 like 90% of the time, the rejection is not about you. Yeah, exactly. So take the rejections let those go because they're they're not you the acceptances are hold that mm. yes i love that that's so great now let's get on to your um i love all this stuff these stories i could listen to forever and ever and ever but we but we've only got an hour so we'll, yeah. we'll go on to the next bit but um the, the, <laughs> the, uh, yeah yeah that we'll leave this the rest of this for drinks but the, the your book um Bob's Bank, you know, what's it called? The International Bank of Bob. Um, tell us about Kiva and tell us about how you got involved. And uh, it's such a fascinating, fascinating thing and doing so much good for the world. It's wonderful. Well, thank you. Thanks for that. Um, let me be really clear up top. Sometimes people get confused in hearing an interview and think that I've like had something to do with creating it or whatever. Kiva's just this charity that I never worked for. I've never been an employee of or anything. Um, it's a charity uh, in the Bay Area, California. It was founded by uh, uh, this, these two wonderful people that uh, 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 they, they created. The idea of one person changing the world. Mm. So uh, I'm going to back up a little bit. Microfinance is an incredibly boring word, by the way, that I won't use much. Um, it's, it, I hate that word. But what it is, is it's simply bringing the tools of everyday capitalism that you and I take for granted, credit primarily, savings, things like that, mm. mostly credit, into the hands of small business people um, if anywhere in the world, mostly in the developing world. And it works in, there are a lot of circumstances where it's really optimal. There are places it's not appropriate, like right after a disaster, uh, you know, people don't need loans. They just need money. They just need help. Just get, drop, can we get some rice? Yeah, you know? yeah. There are places where it's not uh, appropriate. Um, but uh, in, in the right situation, it can be really, really useful. Uh, if you think about it, um, you know, so a fisherman in Bangladesh who has been doing it for 20 years, putting food on the table, uh, you know, eventually the gear is going ru to uh, run out. Uh, the, 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 the hooks get old and bent and rusty and the line needs replacing and the boat has a hole in it. And that, that, that guy knows, or that woman, they, they know how to do their business. They do it well, they've done it for 20 years, but now they need a little bit of capital and they can't go to Citibank and get a bridge loan. Um, so for many generations in most of the world, the option then was what's called informal lending, which is to say the local Tony Soprano. And you go and, and uh, the, the, the interest rate in going to a local money lender, uh, informal money lender could be, could be, you know, a hundred percent. It could be something insane. Yeah. So uh, years ago um, uh, in, there was an organization that uh, called Finca in South America that pioneered this and Muhammad Yunus in Bangladesh uh, uh, pioneered they, the idea of like, well, wait a minute, even people who were just living on $2 a day, $3 a day, you know, debt is that that interest rate is that's one of the things that's causing debt. What if we give really low interest loans, and then that fisherman can fix the rowboat, pay off the loan, get on with their lives, and not be in debt to Tony Soprano? Won't that be nice? And it works well enough 
that uh, Eunice won, Eunice and the bank he founded, Grammy Bank, won the Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, uh, you can actually compare the uh, economic progress and education, a bunch of other things. You can compare apple to apple comparisons between Bangladesh, parts of Bangladesh and parts of Pakistan. You can really show, hey, this works. Mm. Uh, where pa Pakistan didn't have a microfinance. But when I came across this, and it seemed like a really cool way to help the world, use some of my Jeopardy money and my TV money and maybe something. And there wasn't a lot of, um, there aren't, academic studies on this are almost impossible to do for a bunch of reasons. They're usually completed in 18 months and you can't measure generational change in 18 months. So, uh, uh, and even if only, like if, if you took a uh, hundred businesses and financed them and 50 of them broke even and 30 of them went under and 19 of them did pretty well. And one of them was the local Thomas Edison. You've made an enormous change and nobody will ever measure that with a randomized controlled study. So uh, some of it has to be anecdotal and some of it, like, how does this work? And I was curious about the people doing it and it was a, and I loved the charity. So I thought, okay, well, let me take a look at this. And I spent four years and a lot of time um, traveling around and I put, um, about $20,000 US of my own money into loans uh, all over the world and then followed it. I literally followed the money. I went to Kiva. Hi, my name's Bob. Where <laughs> does the money go? How do you do this? Well, here it goes to our partners. And I went to Peru and hello, I'm Bob. And I met the partner in Peru. And, and then I met the, the, the loan officer and then I actually met the client in the field. Wow. And showed up and hi, I'm Bob from Ohio. How are you? And I did that in Rwanda and Bosnia and uh, pretty much all over the world. I could just list countries after, after one after another. And what the book becomes about isn't the technology of uh, micro-lending micro or it stops being about the economics really fast. And it's about the personal stories, uh, the people. And it's also about what it's like to just, what is it like to get on a plane and just show up in Rwanda <laughs> and play with the kids? Because that's a big deal. And what comes out of it and what I want to share with people is there's a hope that a lot of people have that, that we are really all the same everywhere in the world. Mm. And I feel I'm an incredibly fortunate position. I don't have to wonder. Um, I have met billionaires. I have met people who live on $2 in a slum in India, $2 a day. And we are the same. Yeah. We are absolutely the same. There's just a birth lottery. There's a big prize wheel that spins. And then we're born somewhere to some parents in some circumstance. But, and some of us are jerks everywhere you go in the world. I don't care what society you've got, uh, 30% jerks and 10% real bad jerks <laughs> and about 60% terrific people. Yeah. And then at the far end, there's like, you know, 5%, 10% are saints, you know, it's, it's yeah. the same everywhere. Yeah. I got welcomed. I am as Caucasian as a human being can be. And I went to places that I'd been trained from media to fear, yeah. uh, uh, places in the Middle East, places in Africa, places in South Asia and so on that, you know, this is going to be really challenging. This is going to be difficult. I'm going to need courage. You know what? I never needed courage for a second. Mm. Everybody was splendid. People were so freaking, and nobody knew I was a lender. It wasn't because they, you know, well, you know, he's lending. I didn't tell people that because that would have contaminated yeah, things. Yeah. I, I didn't want that. So I showed up and anywhere I went, um, I'd, I'd show up and I'd introduce myself and, uh, hey, I just, I'm a writer from America and I came to, I'm, I'm curious about your life. You got a minute? Wow. And 
said humbly, of course, yes. And they'd sit and they'd talk and we'd yak and, and I just listen. And then they'd ask about me and, and over and over, a lot of these people were so poor that there was no way to stay in touch with email or whatever, mm, but yeah. over and over and over, they felt like friends and there are loan officers and people who work in these organizations, uh, uh, and charity people and whatnot that I made friends with during this whole period who are still out there, you know, trying to figure out ways to, okay, how do we help during COVID? Is it, is it uh, debt forgiveness? Is it, is it uh, uh, delaying payments? Is mm. it, is it, do we, do we target some extra funding to different projects? I mean, there are people out there, heroes trying to figure out how to save the world in the massively unjust global economy that we have mm. who devote their lives to this. There's a whole ecosystem of them. And it's inspiring and it's amazing. And I wish there, I wish they were the famous influencers since our Instagram. I wish they were the, you know. Yeah. So that's that. That's that story. That's it's a wonderful story. It's a, it's a, Has there been a story, uh, you know, a person or a story that has really impacted you? You know, that's really had an emotional impact. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, does this podcast have seventeen hours? <laughs> um, there have been a few. Uh, uh, yeah, several. Um, at a kind of middle class level, uh, the people who founded Kiva, uh, it was yeah. a married couple who just wanted to do something good in the world. They, they heard Muhammad Yunus speak. Uh, Matt Flannery was at the time a, a software engineer for TiVo, the, uh, the DVR company in America. Yeah. And he just sat up at his kitchen table with his laptop and devised the basic outline of what is still the Kiva website at his kitchen table. And now, you know, millions of people around the world have had their businesses financed and successfully repaid yeah. their loans. And like, it, it, it just, it's like, he had this idea. He'd never done it before, but it was worth a shot. Uh, and it came out of, you know, uh, Jessica Jackley, his, his wife, she was pushing him for it. She's gone on to do wonderful things. Um, so that's an inspiring story. Mm. The, the people on the ground level, though, the, the, the actual folks receiving the loans and putting their lives together. And uh, these are, many of them are just like the strongest, most creative people. I mean, there's a, there's a falsehood that the, the, the poor people are poor because they're lazy, mm. which no, dude, like, okay, you try living on $3 a day and see how much work that is because every penny has to count and just putting, Oh my God the endurance and the strength and the, the, the ability to still be playful. And, mm. and there's no, the, the, the noble savage myth is obviously a bunch of crap too. Um, nobody's noble because they're poor. They're just poor. Um, but there's a nobility that we all have. And everybody loves their kids. And when you meet a billionaire or you meet somebody who's living on $3 a day, I really believe that the way to meet them is that they love their kids too. And, and that is one thing everybody has in common. I don't care your religion. I don't care what culture you're from. So I would be in places where uh, culturally, on a cosmetic level, the language spoken, the God worshiped, the clothes worn, the crap, uh, uh, that stuff's as thick as just a thin little coat of paint scratches off your finger. Underneath, everybody loves their kids. Mm. So I would meet people that way. And so... Yeah, there was this guy in Lebanon, um, uh, specifically in the book, I, I, I think I euphemized, I, I give him the pseudonym Ahmed uh, uh, in the book, and I'll use that here. His, uh, he had a restaurant for, I think, 15 years that uh, he didn't care 
whether you were a Sunni or a Shia or what you were living, he didn't care. Come into your restaurant, he'd feed you. And his family lived over the restaurant and it was blown up in oh. the uh, uh, 2006 uh, war with Israel. Hezbollah launches rockets one way, Israel launches rockets the other way. One of them hits his restaurant. He has nothing to do with it, but <clears throat> the whole, everything is gone. His f- family survived, luckily. Nobody was home. And now he, w- when I met him, uh, he was rebuilding his life. Uh, he now had a job as a, uh, a loan officer with a co- place uh, called Amashmo. He was helping other people rebuild their businesses and getting paid while he was rebuilding his. And I met him and I, we were driving back from meeting some people uh, in Beirut and uh, uh, driving and, and I, 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 could, I had to ask him, are you bitter? Are you upset? If, if, um, if somebody blows up my house, I, I get resentful. I'm like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm petty like that. Somebody blows up everything I own and it dangers my family. I hold a grudge. I'm like, <laughs> so I ask him, you know, is, is, uh, are you, are you bitter? Are you angry? And he looked at me like I was a child. I, I with this loving look, but this like, you don't get it. And he says to me in broken English, I have like no Arabic. So he, he had to push through English. And he looked at me and he said, you love more, you win. You mm. don't stop. And thanks for God. And when he says God, he doesn't point at the sky, he points at his heart. Uh, you love more, you win. And I sat there and I was like, you know, you hear this kind of stuff coming out of philosophy courses or a yoga class or whatever. This is a guy who had his life blown up mm. and he can live this. And he's never going to be famous. He's never going to be wealthy. He's never going to be able to spread this. But one of the things that I try to do is evangelize him, what he said. Mm. Um, you love more, you win. If you can live that way, you won. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I think I'm the same as you. If somebody blew my house up, I'd probably be resentful. <laughs> no, it's like, yeah. but we, we don't, we just don't get it, do we? You know, we, we're not, um, we, we take for granted everything we've got. We really do. Mm-hmm. Really. And uh, by the way, it's a lesson that I forget every day. I don't, I don't pretend to come off like a holy guy. I mean, somebody ticks me off on Facebook, I'll block them. I don't love more. I win every damn day. I, I've seen that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I wish, I wish I was, uh, I, I, I want to live up to it and I don't, but I, I, I keep it in mind. I want to, um, yeah. uh, uh, I need to be loved back, but you know, um, but he doesn't like, like, yeah, he has his stuff way more together than for all the things that I've ever done, whatever, it's nothing. He's, he has his, he, he has at least that much figured out. Mm, um, wow. That's, a, that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, well, this has been inspiring. Now this um, podcast is about get off the bench, but you've, you've mentioned that a hundred times and I reckon you've given that many amazing tips all the way through it. Do you have anything else to add just for somebody who might be thrashing an idea around in their head Mm -hmm. and they just haven't taken the steps to start it? Mm. Uh, The only other thing I'd suggest is uh, break down the steps. If you have, um, you know, like I want to win Eurovision for Australia. Okay. That's a big goal. I'm only half kidding. Okay, now I can't do that next year. I can't do that tomorrow. I've got to get better at singing and I've got to get better at guitar and I've got to get, there are intermediate steps that I have to break down. The dream is impossible, but none of the steps on the way are actually even that difficult and most of them are fun. So yeah. if, if I make that my dream, then okay, what are the intermediate steps? Okay, I've got to learn some more music. I've got to learn some songwriting. I play the guitar. Okay, I've got to get out there and perform. I've got to 
uh, get, uh, be friendly to people. I've got to be nice. I've got to uh, get my stuff recorded, get in front of people. Then I've got to get probably a big sway pole to balance on while I'm singing, because that seemed to work. Um, Kate, <laughs> Kate Miller Heidke is a freaking goddess. And if she ever hears this, oh my God, I worship. So <laughs> wonderful. And then, uh, you know, but, but the individual steps break down the dream. You know, you want to write the best selling novel. Okay. Where, where are you? What are the, break it down into 10 steps and then do the first one. Yeah. And don't even worry about the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, just do the first one. And you'll be changed even by that process. And by the time, by the way, another thing too is let your dreams change. If you get halfway, like, okay, I want to win Eurovision for Australia. I get halfway there. I'm suddenly an amazing guitarist and I'm suddenly a fantastic songwriter. And, but maybe by that time, Eurovision isn't the thing I want to do anymore. Maybe I've gotten mm -hmm. into jazz. Okay, let Eurovision go and do the jazz. Make the right turn. Yep. Follow the dream. Even when the dream changes, let it change. Take each step keeps going forward and your life will be this glorious zigzag of yes ands. Mm. And you'll mess up a hundred times, but you'll, it'll be, it, that's, I think, the way to live personally. Yeah, I love it. Love it. I keep saying that to people. It doesn't matter if your vision keeps moving. It doesn't matter. Just keep heading towards it. Just keep yeah. heading somewhere. Just keep going. So yeah. oh, I love all that. Love, love. Oh, God, you've given some um, amazing, some greatest, great stories, but some amazing advice in there too. And I, I'm really, I love it. I appreciate it so much. Now, where can people find you? <laughs> um, well, online is just, my name is Bob Harris. You can Google that with uh, the word Kiva and find the microfinance stuff. You can uh, Google that and the word Jeopardy and find videos in a book I wrote about the show. Um, you can uh, Google, I don't know, that, that would be, that would be where there's a Wikipedia page, just Bob Harris. You can find me on Wikipedia. I'm the one that's the writer. It's such a common name. There's like 40 Bob Harris's, but I'm Bob Harris <laughs> writer. Um, there's a website, uh, bobharris.com that I haven't updated in seven and a half years. So it's there. You'll find some things. They're somewhat obsolete, but there are videos and whatnot. Um, and, uh, yeah, you can poke around and stalk me, I suppose. Uh, not that hard to find. <laughs> I don't have a current project to plug. I don't have a, um, during the COVID period, I'm mostly spending my time connecting with people and doing a lot of reassessing myself, uh, yeah. uh what to do. And also truthfully, I, I'm an American, 95% of the people in my life are back there and it's a country mm. much more challenged by COVID than we are. So most of my life right now is being in touch with people and trying to be loving and supportive and take care of my own heart in the middle of all this as the safest person I know. Um, so I don't have anything that I'm, 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 I'm pushing right now or, or any great project. Uh, so yeah, just, just, you know, Google around, you'll find me. Mm, but I think you deserve a rest. I think you've, uh, <laughs> you probably lived 20 lives in the, in your 56 years. <laughs> uh, thanks. Well, I'd like, I want, I want 20 more. I mean, I'm just now getting good at being 25. Yeah. And, you know, I'd like another 31 years of being 25. Uh, so. <laughs> well, I hope you get them. Thank you. Thanks very much. And you as well. Everybody listening uh, to this. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, I'm going to let you go, but I really, really appreciate you sharing all this with everybody. And it's just uh, been an absolute pleasure chatting uh, with you. Real pleasure here and, and real kudos, real respect for what you're trying to do with this podcast and what you are doing with this podcast. I mean, as I was saying before we, we got started, encouraging other people is one of the, it's a holy thing. It's an important thing. It's one, it's how, it's what we're here for. 
It's what we're here for. There's nothing else. What else matters as much as looking after each other? Yeah. Part of the reason I moved to Australia is, is part of the, the ethic here. Uh, but that's a whole other story. So uh, you are doing uh, what my grandfather would have called the Lord's work. And I uh, big respect. Oh, thank you, Bob. I really appreciate that. Well, I'm, I can only get up every day and do my best. And that's, that's what you got to do, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And, but now I've learned another one. Yes, and I'm going to do my best. Yes, and. So. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's, right. that's awesome. All right, well, you have a wonderful day. And um, um, thank you so much for sharing this amazing stuff with all my listeners. Oh, Truly oh. appreciate it. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Eve. See ya. All right. Holy dooly. I tell you what, I'm exhausted listening to all that. What a life. What an incredible life Bob's lived. And, you know, for, at, at 56, what, how much has he squeezed in there? And what I really love about what Bob's saying, and I particularly love the bit about the, um, the, the being a radio commentator. You know, he was, he was an award-winning radio commentator for five years, and then he decided to have an opinion and, and was ousted, you know. And what I love about that was I could just see Bob, you know, going, oh, I might have a crack at radio. Radio. And then, you know, out you go, Bob. And he's like, <laughs> oh, well, laughing it off. It's kind of like a naughty kid hiding in a hiding somewhere, you know, and, and just waiting to be found out. And it's kind of like I might climb that tree. And then when I get caught, I'll laugh when I jump down. You know, he's just he's just put so much sort of um, almost childlike energy, you know, into everything. I'm going to have a crack at that. I'll have a crack at that. And I really love the way Bob uh, framed failure and rejection you know it just doesn't matter like these things are going to happen we're going to be faced with failures we're going to be faced with rejection and it just doesn't matter you can go to your grave saying I wish I had of or you can have a crack at it and say man I screwed up you know but at least I gave it a crack and you know to me listening to Bob that's everything he stands for is just giving a crack so Wow, I'm exhausted, but I tell you what, he's, he's given me a lot to think about. I'm going to really sleep on this one tonight, but I hope, I really hope it inspired you. I hope you're going to go away from this and start to think about, man, what is it that I really want to do? What is it that I haven't been doing that I just should give a, give a crack, you know, and go and do it. Anyway, that's it for me. Thank you so, so much for joining me. I couldn't do this without you. I truly appreciate your support and really value that you spend the time with me. So this week, go have a crack and um, I'll catch up with you next week. Okay, see ya. Hey, thanks for joining me. It really does mean the world to me. Now, if you or somebody you know is doing amazing things, make sure you send me an email to info at getoffthebench.com.au. That's info at getoffthebench.com.au. Otherwise, head on over to my website at kerenvaughan.com and tinker around there a bit and send me a message. Okay, catch you next week.